Convoy of Hope. So excited, guys. Uh, we were just at our, at, our, at our gathering with all the other site directors and team leads, and man, there is nothing but just excitement and buzz all across the city. We know that uh, the media has already caught on. They're going to be interviewing many different sites. I mean, this is just going to be one of the greatest efforts that we've ever done across the city to make sure that our city is cared for, loved on, given resources, given backpacks for the kiddos. So we are super excited for this. In fact, you guys are excited too because we currently, right now, uh, we are about, about two weeks out. But as of right now, we have over 33% of the funds raised, and we're taking our, our offering next week. So we're going to take our official convoy offering next week, so make sure you're ready for that. Uh, but uh, we're already at 33% of our goal financially, and we are at almost 50% of our volunteer goal. So that's both exciting, and also, let's do this, guys. Uh, so if you've yet to sign up, please go to zake.church forward slash sign up. We would love to have you. Maybe you're saying, hey, I'm new to the church, and I haven't really uh, done anything. This is the gr- what greater way to get to know people than to serve alongside them. I promise you, if you've been coming for a while and you're like, man, I don't know how to get plugged in. This church is loving and they're welcoming, but I just don't know how to, how to really break through. I promise you, serve. Right? How many of you have like made some of your best friends by serving alongside them? So I promise you, this is a great way. Awesome. Yeah, I love, a lot of you are like, yeah, we've done it. We do it every single year, this Convoy Hope event. So uh, go ahead and do that. We're super excited for what's happening on July 31st. We're going to do something beautiful. Amen? Everybody say, one another. One another. We're in this series where we've been looking through the New Testament and kind of taking note of how frequently we see this Greek word, Aleleon, this word that means one another, where we see Paul or Jesus and, and, and James and John and, and all these different writers of the New Testament, we see them use this word one another, kind of emphasizing that, that maybe what we've kind of done in the Western church where we overemphasize the individual, where we're always emphasizing it's my personal relationship with Jesus, uh, we, we see in, in the scriptures that in fact, not only is your personal relationship with Jesus important, but it's also your, your horizontal relationship. It's our horizontal relationships with another. As we see the cross, which is the symbol of the Christian faith, right? These, these two axis points, what we see is that there is a beam going from earth to heaven, which is symbolic of our, of our, horiz- or our vertical relationship with God. But we also see on the cross that there is a, a horizontal axis. And I believe that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was not only for us to experience a renewed relationship with God, but it's also intended to give meaning to our relationships that we have with each other. There is a reason that when we read the New Testament, that they, that they always use this idea of brother and sister. We're more than just friends. In the body of Christ, because the same blood has washed over all of us, because the same uh, God has saved all of us. He has now brought us into His family, and we are now family. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. That means that there is loneliness, that simply by being a part of the body of Christ, that that should be eradicated in the name of Jesus. We are called to focus on the one another. We see this over a hundred times. A hundred times we see it in the New Testament. Fifty-nine times referencing relationships in the church. A third of them dealing with church unity. A third of them tell the church to love one another. A third of them instructing attitudes of humility. So what we see repeated often, we see it a hundred times. I said this, what we see repeated often, often deserves our repeated attention. So we're spending time looking at all of the one another, or not all of them, because that would be a hundred weeks and we don't have 
that kind of time. But, but we are looking at, at many of the one another phrases. And today, we're going to be spending time looking at encourage one another. And I'll get to that in a second. But let me start with this quick little story. Uh, at, the, at the height of COVID, so like April 2020, uh, when everything was starting to, to close down and shut down, I, I told myself I was going to read, I was gonna read some more his history books. And I, I picked up a book. Uh, by uh, Alec, this Russian poet and, and narrator, uh, uh, orate, orator and, and a historian. His name is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. I just like saying his last name. Solzhenitsyn. Alexander Sol- Solzhenitsyn. And he was actually uh, alive. He died in 2008, but he was living in Soviet Russia at the height of the Soviet Union. When they, when they had the rise of the Bolsheviks and they overthrew and it was the rise of of communism in Russia, and, and, and we started realizing in the Western world that there was a lot going on there, and, and that they had these, these concentration, these labor camps, and, and they would take anybody who spoke out against the communist regime, who was speaking out for freedom, they would take them and they would send them, send them to these gulags, and they would enforce them, and they said there was retraining centers, but it was actually hard labor. People were dying. I mean, this is one of the greatest humanitarian, I mean, other than the Holocaust, this is like right up there. You have Pol Pot, and you have that, what happened there. But this in Russia was a tragedy. Tragic. They took Alexander Sol- Solzhenitsyn, they put him in a gulag in the middle of Serbia, and he wrote what is called the Gulag Archipelago. This series of memoirs where he talks about how a state, you're like, why would you read this during COVID? I don't know why I was reading this. It was like the worst thing I could do. I was like super like on edge and stuff. But, but I was reading this, and... Uh, there's something that just gripped my heart when, when I was reading about one ex- encounter that he had at these gulags. Uh, the, the workers were told that if, whenever you see someone stop working or put down their shovel, that they have the freedom to take their life on the spot. And working in these harsh conditions, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he, he, he said that there was one point where he was so out of without hope that he decided to put his tools down and he wanted to end his life. In fact, he cites this. He says, I decided to stop working so that the guards would end my miserable existence. Yet as soon as I fell to the ground, another Christian revealed a hidden cross where I could see it. The Soviets removed every symbol of Christianity from the hands of his people, and yet there was this man who somehow managed to sneak in a cross. We don't know this man. He goes unnamed. But, it, but Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in an interview, says that this man had it hidden, and he would always show it to the prisoners who were losing hope. And he flashed this cross to him. So the hidden cross where I could see it, it was in that moment that I felt holy encouragement in the midst of a concentration camp. In the frigid temperatures of Serbia, here he was, where I it was in that moment where I felt holy encouragement. Remember that God gives hope and strength. I decided to continue working because of a Christian who cared too much to let me give up. Because a Christian cared too much to let me give up. Today I want to talk about the mandate that we have in the church to encourage one another. We're not living in those times far from it. We're not living in, in Soviet Russia. 
where we can't encourage each other. But here's one thing I am certain of, that every single one of us from time to time have experienced moments where we too have felt like giving up. Where we too have felt like, why am I doing this? Is it even making a difference? Is this friendship worth it? Is is this marriage worth it? There have been moments where we've felt discouraged as well. Is is this job even worth it? Well, we've had these moments where we're questioning our existence, these existential crises. And, And here I believe that God's voice to us this morning is that we would be encouraged and that we would encourage one another. What does encourage mean? It means this, the act of building up and strengthening another person. It means to build up and to strengthen another person. Uh, a couple of years ago, during March Madness, there was a, a, a moment where there was a, an athlete who, or a basketball player for UCLA. I, some of you may know this story, uh, where he was playing a horrible game. Moses Brown was his name. He was playing a, playing a horrible game, and then his teammate, Jalen, comes alongside him in the middle of the game. doesn't even say anything, but just taps his chest, lifts up his chin, and completely changes his posture. Encouragement is literally running alongside someone whose chin is down and saying, let's lift this up. We are called to do that for one another. How many of you are thankful that God encourages us? That His Word is is timely, it's it's well, it's, it's alive and well, it's active in our lives. But how many of you know that we are called to be that encouragement to each other? You and I are called to do this. In fact, we're going to spend some time this morning, in our short time together, we're going to spend some time in Hebrews. And I want to read two passages, and then I'll give you a little bit of context about what was happening in Hebrews, and then we will, we will exegete the, the passage that we're reading. So let's start at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. The writer of Hebrews says, And let us not neglect our meetings together. This, don't neglect this. Don't put this on the back burner. Don't make this an option. It, it's got to be something that we, we, we keep at the forefront of everything that we say and do. In fact, I truly believe this, and I'm not trying to go old school Pentecostal on you. I truly believe that we should be fixing our schedules around church, not the other way around. He says this, Dude, let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another. And I don't think he was being passive-aggressive, like, as some people. Like, he wasn't doing that. He's just saying, hey, I know how hard it is to fall out of rhythm and out of sync, but guess what happens? Discouragement. Discouragement. He says this, and let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. Jesus is coming. We gather to constantly remind each other that He is coming. And it's not meant to be a terrible, like, oh man, Jesus is coming, get busy. Right? Like, like I, there's a t-shirt I, I, used, I used to have before I was a Christian. It was really passive-aggressive one. I had to said, Jesus is my homeboy, when He wasn't my homeboy at the time. And I had a t-shirt that said, Jesus is coming, quick, look busy. And uh, it was super irreverent, and I wish I still had it so I could burn it. But, uh, but encourage one another, because the day of His coming is drawing near. We see in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 and 13, it says this, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Look at that. Encourage one another. That is sandwiched by these two phrases of an unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. So we are to encourage each other to avoid that, and we are to encourage each other so that we won't be hardened by sin's 
deceitfulness. We are called to call out things in one another. That, that's the purpose. But we've lived for too long in this hypersensitive culture where it's like, you can't tell me how to live my life. To which we should say in the church, I'm not. I'm telling you how to follow the instructions that God has for our life. And of course, that comes with friendship and relationship, and it should be done in a posture that, that is humble and not prideful and boastful and arrogant, but we are called to encourage. Another word would be exhort, to come and, and, and to kind of push along. But we're going to spend some time just in our passage this morning. I want to give you some quick context for what was happening in the, in the Hebrew church, in the Hebraic, Hebraic church. So this is what we know in Hebrews was a church that was experiencing sharp persecution, great persecution. In fact, in A.D. 49, we already had Christians kicked out of Rome. So they were likely those Christians. They were Hellenized Christians who were Jewish of uh, origin and, and, and upbringing. They were kicked out of Rome in 49. We also know that soon after that, about the time of this writing, they were going to experience a very difficult persecution where the emperor Nero would raise up and would burn, burn Christians on the stake. This was a very persecuted church. You may say what you're experiencing now is a form of persecution where they're taking our freedoms and our rights as Americans, but this church was persecuted. Burnt at the stake simply for saying they believe in Jesus. This church was persecuted. The, the Hebrew church was not only persecuted, but oftentimes along with persecution comes discouragement. They were discouraged. And they had already told themselves, let's go back to Jerusalem and let's become Jews once again. Let's lose sight of, of Jesus as the completion to all things. And, and let's just go back to our old culture, our old ways of doing things, our old ways of reading things, our old theology. Let's go, let's go back. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah like we had thought he was. Maybe he was just another one of, of many people who have said that they were a Messiah back in the day and they were leading revolutions. Maybe he was just a revolutionary that failed and they were thinking about throwing in the towel. Maybe you've been there before. We were just like, maybe following Jesus isn't, isn't for me. He's having, they're having this moment and the writer of Hebrews decides that truth is the greatest way to encourage them. Truth. Everybody say truth. Encouragement starts as we recenter ourselves on truth. I have uh, one of my boys. He is he is a very tough kid, uh, very just like ram not rambunctious, but he like he can knock into a wall and the wall's gonna come down before he comes down. Like he's just that kind of kid. And uh, but but he's just as as big. He's like a rhino in a <laughs> in a china shop. Like he's like wow, just knocking things over all the time. Uh, but he is just as big in his field. Like, he's high emotions. He gets that for me, just like the Latin side in us. Like, we're just, like, super emotional and passionate. Where my wife is just, like, this very cold. Just kidding. I just made this. My wife's cold. <laughs> just kidding, babe. She's not. But, but, but my son, Desmond, is very high on the emotions and stuff. And, and there's times where he'll be in a, in a little spat, a little feud with, with his brother, August. And he'll just run out and say, nobody loves me. And they just like run to me. Nobody loves me. And I'll grab him, I'll put him on my lap, and I'll say, Des, come on, let's think about this. Does, does Daddy love you? Yeah. Does, does Mommy love you? Yeah. Does Aubrey love you? Yeah. And, and we'll go through the whole list, the entire family. Does Ita love you? Yes. Does Ita love you? Yes. 
Does, does, does grandma love you? Yes. Does papa love you? Yes. And we'll go through, does uncle A, does Lala love you? Does Bella, Harlow, all the cousins, everybody. And we, we're just going through this list. Do they love you? And, and, and we're just like, yes, yes. And I'll get to, does August love you? And he's all, he says, no. <laughs> but I remind him in that moment that, that what you are currently experiencing, where you make this outlandish statement that nobody loves me, is not actually true. He needs to recenter himself on what is true. And that was ha- that's what was happening in the Hebrew church. They're like, this isn't worth it. Look at all this persecution that we're experiencing. It's, it's not worth it. We shouldn't be doing this. Maybe Jesus isn't the Messiah. Maybe he isn't the chosen one. Maybe he wasn't the one who was intended to, to save us and restore us and to, and to bring us into this, the presence of God. So the writer of Hebrews, I just want to give you a quick synopsis. The writer of Hebrews spends so much time bringing truth. I encourage you, you can spend a day and just read this, and it's so beautiful. He just spends time just giving them this, this, this rewiring, this recentering on the truth of the matter. That your circumstances don't determine what truth is. That the, the weight of what you're experiencing doesn't change the truth. So here we see in Hebrews, look what he says in chapter 1. He says, uh, Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 3, he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. In chapter 4, he says, Jesus is the true and better Joshua, who where Joshua provided temporary rest for the nation of Israel, Jesus is providing permanent rest for all people. In chapter 5, he says, Jesus is the true high priest, where the former high priest would offer up a sacrifice that would be good for only a year, but he is the one who offers a sacrifice, a sacrifice which is himself that lasts for all time. We see later on in chapter 6 that Jesus is the true and greater Abraham where Abraham was given a promise and stepped out in faith, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. The writer of Hebrews is a preacher. I mean, he's going crazy. He says Jesus is greater than Melchizedek, the priest who had no lineage, no name, and Jesus is that one, a new Melchizedek. We see that the new covenant, Jesus' covenant, is greater than the old covenant. In chapter 9, it says that Jesus' sacrifice is greater than all temple sacrifices ever offered. So he spends nine chapters trying to convince the church of the supremacy of Jesus. And if there's one thing I can do for you this morning, if your heart is discouraged, if I could just do one thing, if I could say one thing for you to say, okay, this is what I'm taking home, it would be this. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. So Hebrews chapter 10. That's what he says in verse 19. He says, therefore. We already know what the therefore is there for. Jesus is greater. Look what he says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence. Let me say confidence. But say it with some confidence. I just some confidence. Confidence. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. He's saying two things. We have confidence And we have a great high priest. What is he doing? He's telling the church this. How do we encourage each other? Number one, we do this. We recenter the truth of Jesus. We recall the truth of Jesus. I hope and pray that in the moments where you, your life seems to be toppling over itself, or maybe finances are getting hard and your emotions are running high, that you remember and you recall the truth of Jesus. That he has been faithful in the past, he will be faithful again. That he saw you out through that one problem, he will certainly see see you out through this one. That he provided in that situation, you better believe he will do it again. He didn't just forget about you. So what do we do? We recall the truth of Jesus. 
With what? With a holy confidence. Holy confidence is this, a lasting boldness that exists despite our circumstances. That I tell my situation, Jesus is greater. I tell that cancer, Jesus is greater. I tell that sickness, and I tell that famine, and I tell that pestilence, and whatever the enemy thought he can ravish, I tell that situation, I'm not lying to it, I'm not deceiving myself, I'm just telling the, 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 the real perspective. I know that in this world we will have troubles because this world has fallen, but Jesus is coming to redeem it. He has come once, and He will inaugurate it in completion when He comes again, and that day is coming. We recall the truth of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10 continues on, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what do we do? Do we keep our eyes closed and just into this deep reverence? Maybe, but look what it says here. Let us draw near to God. Oh, man. We have access. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts. And look, this is a, a complete heart, mind, and body. Look what he says. Having our hearts sprinkled. Now he's using imagery from the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's saying this. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. He is saying this. Jesus, our great high priest, the moment we accepted him as our Lord and Savior and the moment we decided to forsake all others, we said, Jesus, you are supreme in our lives. In that moment, we have with a sincere and full assurance, we have the ability, because of Jesus, to draw near to God. You know what happens to your relationship with God when you realize He wants you to draw near to Him? It changes everything. But why do we live in a culture, and why do we tolerate this idea that I can only come to God when my performance is well? That's a lie, friends. Now, I'm not giving us a reason and excuse to perform and behave in a way that is contrary to how God desires, but I'm saying this, God's invitation for you to come into His presence is not determined on your behavior. Even in the moments of our least proud performance, Jesus invites us to His throne of grace. Let me say that one more time, because I, I, I'm fully convinced that there are people in here who have not quite grasped this truth. Even in the moment of our least proud performance, where you just yelled at your wife and kids, and you just went off the handle, where you did what you said you wouldn't do again, even in the moment of our least proud performance, Jesus invites us to His throne of grace. He doesn't say, hey, go clean yourself up. And once you clean yourself up and wash yourself off enough, then you can come into my presence because this is holy ground. He says, no, come to my presence with your muck and your mire and your sins, and I will wash you. Look what he says in Hebrews. He says this. Let us approach then. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who is tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. Look what it says there. Let us then, because he's perfect, and because he is our high priest who stands in the gap and atones for our sin, and was, was, was tempted in every single way that we were, yet was perfect, perfect. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. That means I don't have to sheepishly walk in and say, hey God, it's, it's me again. 
come and you say, Lord, through you that I would not have the strength of my own strength to accomplish your desires and your design for life. I'm coming to you now. And what did he, look what he says here. So that we may receive mercy and find grace. Grace is not just a get out of hell free card that will punch one day when we meet the Lord face to face. We're like, hey, where's my grace card? Oh, there it is. I, 1996. Still good, Jesus, right? Grace is not just a get out of hell free card. Grace is also the power to help us in our time of need. So when I fail, I run to the throne of grace. And in that moment of humility, guess what happens? He pours out grace, and that gives me power to stand the next time I'm tempted. We need to go to Him. We go with confidence. Not in our strength, not in our doing, but what He has accomplished. Amen? So number three, we hold on to the hope of Jesus. So we recall the truth of Jesus, we remain in the presence of God, and then we hold on to the hope of Jesus. He says this, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope He professed. For he who promised is faithful. What do we say unswervingly? The imagery that is given in, in the original language is this idea of, of holding on without bending. They were an agricultural community, society. And another idea would be a reed that does not break or bend. We are called to be men and women who unswervingly hold on to Jesus. There may be moments, there may be mo- there are moments where you maybe let a finger off the rope of Jesus and you're like, oh, what is his invitation is to run to his throne of grace. Maybe you've been swerving lately, zigzagging in your efforts, swerving in your belief system. I want to let you know this morning there is an invitation from heaven to run to the throne of grace and mercy. His arms aren't crossed saying, how dare you mess up again. His arms are open saying, come. There's access because of Jesus. What does this look like? What does unswerving look like? Well, the Hebrew church was very familiar with this concept. In fact, later on in chapter 10, look what he says in verse 32. This church was persecuted. Remember I told you that. Look what, he, look what the writer of Hebrews is saying about this. He says, think back on those early days. You say early days. Think back to those early days. When you first learned about Christ. When you were very passionate about Jesus. When you were in youth group and you were like, you and me, Jesus, we're going to win the world, right? Remember back in those early days, church, he's writing to the Hebrew church, when you first learned about Christ, remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. Sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things you were. It's one thing to help someone who's who's doing worse than you. It's another thing to look over and see someone who's suffering just as much as you are and yet you are choosing to help them. They were driven by grace. That's the only thing that can make that happen. What allows a, a man who is in a concentration labor camp to, to, to shine the cross and put his life at risk, it is the hope of Jesus. 
He says here, you suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you made sure to buy arms and to fight. You were a strong patriot and you stuck it to the man. That's not what he says here. He says, You were thrown into jail and all you owned was taken from you. You accepted it with joy. You just laid down for it to happen. Your confidence wasn't on that situation. Your confidence came from somewhere else. The world can act like the world. Tyrants will be tyrants. But King Jesus reigns supreme forever. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. We are called to unswervingly hold on to Jesus. Because my situation doesn't determine my outcome. He determines. He's given me victory. Fourth, we spur others towards good. Everybody say the word spur. Let's read this really quick. Hebrews, we're going down this passage. Hebrews, the next verse 23. It says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Say that word spur again. You guys know the San Antonio Spurs? They've got the cowboy boot thing, and it's, you know, like, you ever see a Western? They're like, cha-ching, cha-ching, right? Like, I grew up in the city. I've always wanted to be a cowboy. That's a dream of mine. Anybody got some spurs? You give them to me, I'll put them on my jigs. I'll put them on my Air Force Runs, and just cha-ching, right? Like, I just love it. I love it. I always thought spurs were a weapon. Maybe you're laughing at me because you're a good cowboy and you know how that works, but I always thought a spur was just to kick someone on the side, like, a right? No. What is a spur? A spur is not a weapon. It's a tool. Cowboys would wear them for the sole purpose of looking cool. No, no the sole purpose of when they would mount the steed, when they would mount their horse, to encourage it to keep going, to give some direction. It was never intended to be a thing of pain. It was always intended to be a thing of pressure. We are called to spur on one another. That does not mean we cause each other pain with our words. We beat each other upside the head, like, come on, you idiot, let's go. No, we put our arms around each other and say, let's go. We got this up each other's chin, to be the family of Christ that God has called us to be, to live in community together, to not forsake the gathering of our fellowship, of ourselves, to meet in small groups, to serve on a serve team. If you're not in a, on a serve team, and if you're not in a community group, you're missing out on what God has for you. There's no way around that. I, here's what I can promise you. If you don't serve, and if you don't come to church regularly, if you don't join a community group or a serve team, you will fall beneath the cracks. Because you'll let yourself. I'm praying today that we will spur each other. Right now, I'm spurring you. Hopefully, 
city that needs to know his name. There's a city that needs hope. And on July 31st, we're going to give it to them. Come on, sign up, let's do this. There's a whole room full of kids that need love. Join a serve team. Like, I'm doing this. I'm spurring each other. I'm spurring us along. We are called to do that for each other. I end with this. Don't stop gathering. Don't stop gathering. So how do we encourage each other? According to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, we recall the truth of Jesus. We remain, go back to the last slide. We recall the truth of Jesus. We remain in the presence of God. We hold on to the hope of Jesus, and we spur others towards good. And finally, we don't stop the gathering. Because here, let us hold on. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I want to end with this very practical challenge. We're talking about the need to encourage one another. I think sometimes we think that the opposite of encouragement is discouragement. But the truth is this, that the opposite of encouragement isn't discouragement. The opposite of encouragement is silence. When we don't open our mouths, we affirm and build up one another. Simply by not saying, have you ever heard of the adage, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all? That's a lie from the enemy. If you don't have anything nice to say, you better find something nice to say. You better lean onto the Holy Spirit to, to give you a word to encourage someone. It is a spiritual gift that is available to us as recipients of the greatest news ever told. That we were dead in our sins. Yet Jesus came for us. As the greatest recipients of encouragement, you are also called to be an encourager. It is not something you have to work towards. It's something that overflows out of a heart that's been encouraged. So the opposite of encouragement isn't discouragement. Don't, don't, don't listen to that. The opposite of encouragement is silence. Listen, it costs you nothing to encourage someone else. Why do we buy into this lie that if we encourage someone else, we're somehow reducing ourselves and making ourselves smaller? It, don't listen to that. We are called to build people up. Even if that means them getting higher than us. Oh, man, you're so great. You're so cool. Let me, let me just, you're, you're amazing. Hey, let, let me see this area in your life and let me help you achieve it for Jesus. And, and you're such a gift of this. Let, let, me, let, me, let me call that out in you. You're called to do this. Men in the church. This isn't for the women, or only for the ladies, who God has designed in His brilliance to make them natural encouragers. Men, we are called to be encouragers. We are called, if you are an elderly man, to come alongside the young men and call things out. And say, hey, let, let me help you wake up in the morning and get your kids to church. I'll call you at 6. Church will start till 10. I'll call you at 6, right? We're called to encourage each other. Are you thankful for Jesus? Are you thankful for his encouragement this morning? That his, his presence is here with us and among us. That his, his desire isn't to cause us pain, but to 
provide some pressure because he's good. In fact, the Bible says this, a sign of a good father is one who disciplines his children. God disciplines those that he, that he loves. He cares about us. And I believe that in this place, every single one of us are having a moment, and I pray we're having a moment that we're saying, Lord, where are you trying to encourage me to root out something out of my life? Every eye closed, every head bowed. I believe the Lord would encourage us with this. Are you are you daily reminding yourself of Jesus' presence and position? Or are your emotions so flighty that the moment something goes amiss in your life, you are off the handle, off the rails, outraged, angry, upset, emotional. We are called to have a fruit of the Spirit called self-control. But that comes when we position ourselves to God. Father, I pray over every single person under the sound of my voice, I pray your confidence, your peace, your patience, your encouragement in the name of Jesus. I pray that you yourself would encourage us, encourage us in this moment. That we would not be so flighty and off the handle, but I pray, Lord, instead that we would be grounded in the grace and mercy of Jesus. Secondly, the Lord is saying this to Isaiah Church. Have you openly invited to spur you on towards good works and love? The aim of a church is not just to come on a one day a week and sit in a service. The purpose of a church is that we would be a community of like-minded brothers and sisters, a family of God. As we know, family sometimes gets messy, but we're called to the mess because, hey, we're a mess. Father, I pray today, right now, that every single one of us would invite you. We would invite others for us along. I pray right now you are dropping a name to us. Someone that we can call and say, hey, can, can we just hold each other accountable? Do you need to call a Christian who is maybe a little further along the way than you are? Not to say that pridefully, but someone who's just really been serving Jesus for a while and they got things not perfect and just I believe God is calling some of us in this place to reach out and say, hey, can you spur me along because I want to serve Jesus. The same way Paul said to, to follow me as I follow Christ, I pray that we would do the same. And lastly, who, who is God calling you to encourage today? Whose chin do you need to raise up? Who do you need to flash the, the cross to? Who's giving up on life and saying, This is just way out of my realm of ability and comfort. Who do you need to be the one who stoops down and provides hope to you? Father, I pray today that you would encourage, that you would give strength, that you would draw us to your presence, that you would remind us of your truth, that you would spur us along so that we ourselves, as a result, for each other. Make me an encourager, Jesus. Go ahead and tell them that. Make me an encourager, Jesus.
not just call out the things that don't belong, but let me also prophetically call out the things that we help us to receive. May this church be marked not just by belonging and welcoming, but encouragement also. We love you. We praise you. We ask you.